two Saturdays ago at the intersection of Ship Road and Route 100, right where our office is, there was a fatal car crash. Two children, two teenagers, a brother and a sister, were killed. <clears throat> like many of you, I read about it, posted about it on social media, on Facebook, offered my prayers, what condolences I could offer that mattered to the family who lost their two children. And I also didn't say something. I hesitated. I omitted something. Because, you see, it appears that this accident was a drunk driving accident. And in offering what I did on Facebook in the way of prayers of compassion, I also recognized that I omitted something. There was something I didn't say that I wanted to say. I had a concern that because I am open and public about my own recovery, that if I were to offer a prayer of healing that was in my heart for the person who did this terrible thing and for their family as well, too, that it might be perceived as over-identifying or excusing or even defending what they had done, which was not the case. And so, in fact, I was very, very grateful when someone in the comments to that post offered a prayer for healing for the person who committed this horrible act and for their family, saying that two families have been destroyed here today. Not in the same way, but there is suffering there for both families. I take drunk driving very, very seriously. I do not want to go back to the bad old days. And I've heard lots of these stories over the years, in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, when drunk driving was treated as a joke. Something where maybe you got a night in the drunk tank and a slap on the wrist, and then they let you go. I know people who killed people who back in the day, because of their own drunk driving, saw just a month or two of jail time. Those of you who've been around at Wellsprings for a while, remember the summer of 2008 when we buried... The hardest funeral I've ever had to do. We buried a child of this congregation, 13-year-old Hannah Robb, who chillingly died on Route 100 at almost the exact location where this drunk driving incident was. Some of you who are my Facebook friends might also remember that actually just a few weeks ago, oddly, just a few days before this terrible accident, I saw a personalized license plate on Route 202 that read, I'm a lush. And I did not post this while I was driving. Please know that. Um, but I went on something of a rant, about as much as a rant as I'm ever going to go on Facebook, talking about how this was profoundly unfunny. If this was an attempt at humor, it was a sick joke. If this was a cry for help, then may the person find it. But I'm a lush on a license plate of a car? This is inexcusable. I have buried the dead. From DUIs. I have cared for those and the wreckage that was left behind in the hearts of those who love them. And I have also cared for and will continue to care for and pastor to people who are in prison or in jail 
because of their DUIs. I have room in my heart for both. It is not always easy. The responsibility is not the same on both sides. There is no equivalence. The suffering is not the same on both sides, but there is still suffering there. I am guided by something that we've talked about in this message series, which is that the opposite of healing is not hurting. Too often we get this message that to be healed means we no longer hurt. We've moved past the hurt, got past the hurt, don't feel it any longer. But truth be told, if we really search and seek our own hearts, if there's healing there, we find that the hurt's still there. We find that the loss is still there. If we listen to some of the wisest teachers that there are right now in our lives, spiritual and otherwise, we find that they have a sometimes amazing capacity to continue to feel hurt while also healing. This is why the opposite of healing is not hurting. It's why the opposite of healing is not harming. When we no longer cause harm to ourselves or other people because of our hurt, then we are on a path of healing. This is what guides me in caring for those who sometimes have done very, very awful things. Especially, this kind of thing can guide us when innocent people suffer. It happens all the time and we don't have to believe that the world is a fallen place, that the world is an inherently sinful place. We don't have to believe that the world is a depraved place just to open our eyes and see how often it is that we might, if we're honest, acknowledge that we feel the same thing in the words of the song we just sang, that sometimes this world does feel like a wicked place when we see how much suffering there is, especially, especially of children. I remember just a few months ago, I mean, a true atrocity, the, the, the torture and the murder of little Scotty McClellan. I remember how much rage, how much anger there was. And I felt that rage and anger as well too. And this is a conversation I was engaged with some people on, on Facebook and social media about. And I tried to be respectful because I heard so much rage and so much anger on the people who had done this awful thing that I was missing something else. Where was the compassion, the hurt, the brokenness of the love that was still there? For the child and the children who suffered. Sometimes if our anger gets so overwhelming, it can blot out the very thing that we're angry about in the first place. Compassion can absolutely be expressed as anger. I had a seminary professor who talked about it this way. Bev Harrison said, there is the power of anger that is present in the work of love. And it should not be denied. Sometimes that's a huge motivating force for us. But to remember that it is about love. Compassion can absolutely be expressed through anger. But here's what we have to watch for. I know I have to watch for it myself when our compassion gets exhausted by our anger. Because then we have lost touch with what and who we love in the first place. I mean, acts of violence targeted against people because of their religion or because of their sexual orientation or their gender expression or their race. These things, I have a difficult time imagining what the totally compassionate response would be to persons and people and groups who do such things. I don't know what the thoroughly compassionate response would be to terrorists. But what I do know is this, is that in a world in which there is less compassion and dwindling compassion will likely produce just more terrorism, which is to say people 
who are unable to handle their hurts and who in their hurt turn to harming themselves or other people because they're not healing. Compassion is a heart practice that disrupts this kind of zero-sum thinking. It's why the most difficult practices in so many traditions comes down to this. Jesus put it in this way, but there's all kinds of different ways to articulate it. To even love, or at the very least, pray for those who oppose us. This is an expression of original blessing. Original blessing which says, even if sometimes we don't feel it, I will recognize your hurt, but please know that if in your hurt you harm others, I will also recognize their hurt as well. This calls us beyond revenge, it calls us beyond bitterness, calls us beyond tribalism, and it gets to the heart of a very old word that for me has absolutely nothing to do with the supernatural, absolutely nothing to do with waiting to the next life to come. That word is salvation. Salvation, which for me has to do with wholeness of heart, has nothing at all to do with, you know, learn this esoteric mantra or this particular prayer and you will make progress and you will see the secrets of the universe that are not given to those ignorant people who are uninitiated or that somehow we will only see after we die in the life to come. No, I think the kind of salvation that really makes a difference is that language in Islam of Prayers to Allah, the most merciful, the most compassionate. In Buddhism, they call it simply the great compassion. It is not the knowing all the secrets way of expecting what religion can do for us. It is, however, very similar to what an astronaut who in the 60s and 70s was floating out there in space and looked back on this little earth, this little earth floating there in the sea of darkness and felt a mystical love overcome him and say... I just fell in love with the whole thing. I just fell in love with the whole thing. That is the original blessing of compassion because the whole thing includes a lot of things that if we had our way, it wouldn't include in the first place. But it does. And just as the heart in its physical sense needs exercise to strengthen itself and grow strong, so too the heart as the center of our values, our beliefs, what we care about, what our faith hangs on. This heart needs the exercise of compassion to strengthen it to love so that we don't fall into bitterness, overcome by our own hurt, overcome by our own anger at the many injustices of the world. When we cultivate compassion, we may then be able to cultivate the distance that is required of us if we wish to go deeper in our lives and not tune out and not turn off and not disconnect. Because the truth is, if we embitter our hearts, we will contribute very little to the ceasing of hatred or injustice in our lives goes by many different names and many different traditions. I particularly like this one from the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada, the sayings, the collection of the earliest traditions of the Buddha. Hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is a law eternal. I love the way that sometimes that's translated. It says, this is a very old rule. <laughs> Non-harm is just another word for love. For recognizing that our hearts, when our hearts get hurt, 
can shut down and be, can become hearts that harm. Wisdom such as this, Jesus, Gandhi, Dr. King, we find it over and over again, encourages us, connect, connect, connect. Mary Oliver, the wonderful poet in our tradition, says it this way, connect. She says, except as we have loved, all news arrives as if from a distant land. I love that poem. Actually, the poem's called uh, From a Snowy Day, which, you know, we're very much in touch with. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as if from a distant land. The distant land of our hearts. I mean, it could be our neighbor right next door, but the distant land of our hearts might say, whew, they're before fortune go high. Glad I don't have to be that sucker, right? <laughs> Sucks to be them. It's not me. But I can turn my face. I don't have to pay attention. That's the distance our hearts can contain. We don't listen to the heart's desire to grow. It also means we don't over-identify as well, too. Pema Chodron, the wonderful Buddhist nun who many of us use as a teacher, she has a wonderful expression for this over-identification. She calls it idiot compassion. I have been guilty of idiot compassion. Idiot compassion is the kind of compassion that says, I know exactly what you're feeling when I have no clue what you're feeling, but allows me to feel better about myself. You know, maybe we can recognize that sometimes. It's, you know, she's actually not all being that judgmental and saying idiot compassion. We can change that part of ourselves. But I remember when I had the, the, the clearest expression of idiot compassion that I ever heard in my life. It was about 20 years ago when I was at another congregation. I was involved in a small group discussion. And what happened in that small group discussion is, I don't know how we got there, but someone started talking about um, two generations ago, a whole line of their family had been blotted out by the Holocaust. A whole history that they were missing that has hung over their lives like a cloud of grief. And they were wondering how they could hand that missing tradition over to their kids and to their family and to the next generation. And many of us just sat there listening, absorbing, some of us crying, until one of us in the group piped up, in a past life, I was in Auschwitz, so I know exactly what your ancestors went through. <laughs> this is not a critique of reincarnation, by the way, which I think is just as likely as any other thing that could happen to us after we die. The point is this. You see how that space closed? How the person didn't mind the gap? <laughs> that gap can only be covered by compassion. It cannot be covered by our knowledge, especially our fake knowledge. We can close the gap in the other way, not through idiot compassion, over-identification, but by non-identification, which certainly is not the path of compassion, such as when I was at dinner a number of years ago with a member of my family, who I shall not name. They know who they are. They've had this conversation with me, and they are terrified of death. They are terrified of mortality. They just want to close up like a clam, like an oyster, just lock down on it and not pay attention to the fact that, yes, life means to die. And for many of us, this is a very scary thing, and it hurts our hearts. And so when we were at dinner with a family friend of ours, and this family friend is an attorney, and they were talking about another person who they know through their practice, another fellow attorney who one day woke up in their mid-50s. And the headaches that they had been having for a few weeks just intensified and intensified. And the person went to a doctor and found out that, you know, it wasn't migraines. It wasn't stress. It was brain tumors. And within six months, 
that person, barely 50 years of age, was dead. And maybe it's an index of where I am at life, about to be 45 in a few weeks, that these kind of midlife stories of people just leaving real quick. Oh, i got to remember to breathe in the midst of those stories. Maybe it has that effect on you as well, too. So we were sitting there just kind of absorbing this news, and this unnamed relative of mine said, did they use a cell phone very often? Because I heard that cell phones cause brain cancer. And again, I'm not going to get into the science of the fact that malignant tumors are not caused. Believe what you want. But here's the point. Here's the, here's the point in this. My relative closed the gap. I don't care if he actually believed that microwaves could cause brain cancer. The point is it was not a helpful, not a kind, not a skillful thing to say in that moment and was all about his own resistance to facing his own fears because if he could say, ah, I can find a reason for this seemingly random scare the crap out of me death then I don't have to feel vulnerable myself. If I can find a reason that it happened to them, then it won't happen to me. Closing the gap will never and can never be a compassionate heart practice. Compassion leaves space for the differences between us while still staying connected. This is one of the most essential parts of compassion practice. We don't have to know in order to care. I mean, I see it snowing right now. It's continuing to snow. Thank you all, by the way, for showing up. And I was asked to tell you that it is getting slippery out there. So please be careful. Please be careful when you leave here today. So last week we had another in our Limitless series of cancellations of the winter of 2015. And last week, Chester County Futures was supposed to be here with us, our community partner that does such amazing work with kids living in poverty to help them thrive and grow and succeed and achieve their dreams. And last spring we had an event that benefited Chester County Futures. And at the end of the event, one of the teens, one of the quietest teens, she wasn't even there with her mentor, And she was just about to leave the program. She was 18. She was headed off to college. At the end of that program, she came up to me and she said, without any ebullience or even enthusiasm, she just looked me square in the eye and she said, thank you for caring. Thank you for caring. This is a child whose difficulty in life I have never known as a child of privilege myself. I've known my own difficulty but not like her. Listening to those voices who thank us for caring, especially when we extend ourselves into the places we don't know much about, this is a heart practice we can rely upon to keep us connected. And it can also encourage us to ask the deeper questions. Quite a number of folks at Wellsprings have asked me, in light of our relationship with Chester County Futures, how might we go deeper in engaging our compassion? This was phase to me this way, which is we do a great job of caring for ourselves and each other and a lot of tremendous acts of wonderful charity and spiritual practice and all kinds of good stuff here. But how do we engage a little bit deeper? How might we, as I understand it, not just focus on the kids that have fallen up the river, but maybe walk up the riverbank a little bit and ask the question, why are they falling in in the first place? Are we willing through our compassion to take a difficult look at the fact that right now in this state, for example, poor school districts are resourced at half the rate that wealthy school districts are resourced. 
Listen, I know enough from having political conversations with many of you that we will probably disagree on some of the policy options here. I get that. But because we might disagree about the policy options, that again gives us a pass to say, sucks to be them. These aren't our kids. That is never a compassionate response. Lee, our intern who's responsible for our small groups, and me as the lead minister at Wellsprings, we are committed to creating space at Wellsprings through our small groups so that we can build ministries that will engage our compassion in more direct, more systematic ways. It will remain a commitment here. I promise you that. Because, yes, I know we have a national deficit, and I know many of us struggle with real or self-diagnosed attention deficit. But I have to believe that the most challenging deficit we face is the compassion deficit. Because in that compassion deficit, we turn our backs, even if we don't want to, on those who are objectively less powerful, more marginalized than we are. And we put our focus back on ourselves, even in the midst of our tiredness, our scaredness, our busyness, our fearfulness, protecting, we think, what meager power we have. And it doesn't allow us to ask that question, that ancient question, even if we don't know how to do it, but to be able to answer that question, who is our neighbor? And by the way, it's a trick question. Because in any tradition that says reality is built of relationship, the question is always answered, who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is everyone. We can't just say it sucks to be them and stop caring. To feed our compassion means that we can pay attention to the better heroes, the people who inspire us, the people who encourage us to go deep with our desire to care and to connect. Someone such as this person, Edwin Corian. Some of you might have heard this story, I think about a week and a half ago on public radio. Edwin Corian has been on one of the hellish, he has been in one of the hellish places on earth. In Liberia, he is a survivor of Ebola. And then his five-year-old granddaughter, Komasa, developed the dreaded disease as well, too. And he entered that tent, the tent where she was kept, and bathed her, and washed her, and cleaned her, and fed her. One of the other things in this story said that children with Ebola die at higher rates than adults with Ebola do die. It's because of the isolation. It's because of the lack of compassion and connection. When the only people you see are walking around in big, scary, scientific, medical tent spacesuits, and there aren't any stuffed animals to play with, and there aren't any people to hold your hand. By the way, this is changing in some of those medical isolation units. They are starting to put pictures up on the wall, and even the people in the big, scary medical suits are starting to play with some of those kids, recognizing that the cost of our isolation is this profound feeling of not belonging to life anymore. The best, as the story says, the best is to find someone like Edwin. Yes, a survivor, and so yes, it was safe for them to be in the tent. But someone who, even if it's not the extremity of the Ebola tents, gets this teaching, which applies to all of us, that the best thing is tender human touch. Tender human touch that lets us know we are not alone, that conveys to us the power of witness. 
of what it is to be not abandoned in this life. There's a phrase I've seen on some of the theological blogs that I like recently that I, I really love. Whatever your beliefs are not about God, I love, the, I love this saying. talks about being God with skin on. <laughs> love this image of kind of the divine manifested through tenderness. God with skin on. Love, love is always going to be love, especially cosmic love, always has to have a body. Compassion has to have hands for it to be real. In one of my core practices, which is the metta, the loving kindness practice from the Buddhist tradition, there are words that often open the practice in the traditional form that talks about resonating with an image of a loving mother with their child. Calling that to mind and seeing how that might develop natural loving kindness within us. Well, I don't teach this practice because the truth is that not all of us have the experience of a loving mother. And so for many of us, it actually creates adverse conditions rather than helpful conditions. And so those of us who are mindfulness teachers, we change it up a little bit. We say, think of a being who has benefited you. Think of a picture of love, of kindness that inspires you. I like this one. Oh, yeah. See how natural that is? It doesn't have to be hand-to-hand. It can be trunk-to-trunk. Trunk-to-trunk is still heart-to-heart. As we bring these images to mind, we remind ourselves how natural compassion is to the heart if we are seeking to cultivate that compassion and to give it permission to grow within us. That the heart of the matter and life are the matters of the heart that concern us all and connect us all and through which we can have compassion for all. I look at it out there, and it is snowing. And yes, damn it, it is supposed to be March 1st, so yes, in like a lion, we get it. (laughs) But I also trust more than any meteorological sentence on the day. These words from our core values and core beliefs that just as a gardener strives to create the right conditions for the garden to grow, so do we cultivate the right conditions for our spiritual growth. Working the sometimes thorny, stony, or even fertile ground of each of our hearts can creates the right conditions for life to flourish, for love to grow, and for our spirits, our hands, our trunks to rec- recognize the likeness of love that is inside each and every one of us. Amen. May you hold that likeness today. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Great compassion, boundless, limitless love. Original blessing, we may call you by so many names. It is present, and you are present in our lives. May we become the kind of people who wear love on the skin, who show love 
with our hearts and our hands and our trunks and our eyes and our voices, the kind of people that life calls us to be, to take on the form of belovedness that is the original shape of who we are, recognizing that wherever we go, relationship is entwined with the very fabric of reality. May we grow to the form of love that we already are. And through this, be blessed and be beloved. Amen.